This morning, John 1, 19 through 28. This is the perfect word of God. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they, sent from the Pharisees, asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. When you're confident in your authority, you can be confident in your identity. Consider the contrast. How does the newcomer amateur in a group feel? Now, how about the, the well-known expert in the identical setting? Or how you feel when you're in a place you know you're supposed to be versus when you think you're in the wrong place and maybe not supposed to be there. Or just theoretically, of course. How you feel when an usher walks by and you're sitting in your ticketed seat versus when you've snuck down to the better section below. When you're confident in your authority, you can be confident in your identity. In this morning's passage, we have the first of three testimonies offered by John the Baptist. This one is given to an inquiring committee from the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities of John's day. The next will be to those who are standing near him when Jesus comes toward him. And the third testimony is for two of his disciples. Now, author John does not include as many details about the baptizer's life as do the other gospel writers. The details he does include are focused less on his life than on his testimony. As we covered last week, these Johns share a unity of purpose. And so what the one includes about the other is always written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In this exchange, the baptizer is approached by a delegation of religious rulers sent by the Sanhedrin, men to investigate rumors they were hearing back in Jerusalem about John's ministry. This takes place, as verse 28 tells us, in Bethany, where John was baptizing. It's pretty neat. John specifies Bethany across the Jordan because we're more familiar with the other more famous Bethany that's near Jerusalem. John points out in this way that Jesus' public ministry begins in one Bethany and ends in another. 
Here, across the Jordan, John will testify, and Jesus as the Messiah will come onto the scene. There, in the Bethany near Jerusalem, Jesus will perform his last great miracle, testifying that John was right. He will raise Lazarus from the dead. But to this Bethany comes the investigatory commission from Jerusalem. Verse 19 says it includes priests and Levites. And verse 24, Pharisees, all the major Jewish groups are represented, sent by the Sanhedrin, this tribunal assembly of Jerusalem that rules all of Israel's religious life. And we can tell from their opening question, or at least John can tell, that rumors were floating around Jerusalem that this John the Baptist might be the Messiah, the Christ that everyone had been waiting for. And given this speculation, the committee is sent to investigate. False messiahs were common in Israel's history, and it was the responsibility of the religious rulers to investigate and to expose them as frauds and prevent them from leading the people astray. They aren't wrong to investigate. But what is John doing that causes such a stir? He's preaching a message of repentance, and he's administering a rite of purification, some kind of baptism. So they reason that for him to do such things, he must have a very high view of his own authority and identity. And so for all the questions they ask, it really comes down to the same two. Who are you? The question of identity. And why are you doing this? The question of authority. John's answer to the first question reveals that he is at least aware of the rumors. He starts from the negative. I am not the Christ. The language the gospel writer uses is intended to make this point emphatic. He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Couldn't be any clearer. Christ means anointed one, and in Jewish history, that's a messianic term. It's not a term to be used lightly. Many prophets have been anointed by God, priests and kings likewise, but there is only one, the Christ, the anointed one, and that one is the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. And John says emphatically, I am not the Christ. What happens next in their questioning is a kind of humorous run through the Jewish Rolodex of end-time figures. You can see the gears turning in their mind. Okay, he's not the Christ, but he's preaching and baptizing as though he is connected to the Christ. So who else could he be? What then, they follow up. Are you Elijah? Now, the question was based on their misunderstanding of Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The things that John is doing are clearly in anticipation of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And if he's not the Christ, maybe he's Elijah. Now, Jesus would later explain that Malachi's promise referred to one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, not a undead Elijah coming back. But that's not what the inquisitors mean. They're actually expecting Elijah to return from the dead and to usher in the age of the Messiah. And so when they ask him, are you that Elijah? John says, I am not. 
They go down the list. Next they ask, well, are you the prophet? They didn't even have a name for this prophet. But based on their scriptures, they expected a Moses-like figure who would come and speak the words of God to the people just before the end of all things. And John, again, knowing what they're after and believing that they're missing the point about all of this, says, no, I am not he. Well, now they're really confused, and you can start to see the frustration creep in. If he's not the Christ, and he's not Elijah, and he's not the prophet, what business does he have doing any of this? You can't just wander around Israel as a nobody administering bizarre ceremonies. And while there are some Jewish groups that required a kind of baptismal rite of converts to Judaism, what John is doing is way different. Those people were converts. And because they were coming from paganism to Judaism, they were required to wash themselves a self-administered baptism as a sign of the past life that they were renouncing and walking away from. But here John is doing the baptizing. And he's not just baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. He's claiming that the baptism that he offers is useful even for Jews in preparation for the coming of God's kingdom. Who does this guy think he is? He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. We need an answer. We can't just go back to the Sanhedrin with a list of people that you're not. Who are you? So far, no one in this group is satisfied with John's answers. And it's not as though they were all of one mind on the same team either. This committee sent from the Sanhedrin had all sorts of different points of view in it. It had Pharisees, strict keepers of the law, and the oral tradition that they were developing around the law. That was the Pharisees' thing. They took the Old Testament law and applied it to new situations about which the scriptures were silent. That wasn't always a bad thing. They wanted to apply the law of God to the realities of their daily lives. Where the Pharisees go wrong is when that oral tradition is put on the same level with scripture. But this group also doubtlessly contained some of the Sadducees, The group was sent by the Sanhedrin. That's what's meant by the Jews from Jerusalem. And the Sadducees were the majority party of the Sanhedrin. They were strictly opposed to the things the Pharisees were doing. These newfangled applications of the law in the oral tradition. The Sadducees had a very literalistic interpretation of the Old Testament. That's why they expected the real Elijah. They showed a strong commitment to God's word, which was good, but they got a lot of things wrong. And so with all these very different perspectives, what's fascinating is they unite around the same exact concern. Where does this guy get off? Where where does this authority come from? Who does he think he is? Notice that when they repeat the who are you question, they follow it up with one that better reveals their actual concern. What? do you say about yourself? They asked about John's identity, but what they really cared about was his authority. And they assumed, because it was true about themselves, that his identity gave him his authority. 
The only justification they could imagine for what he did was based in who he was. But John, quoting the prophet Isaiah, turns this expectation upside down. Verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. One scholar writes, he focuses on the authority question and immediately turns it into a matter of bearing witness to the Messiah. His baptism is designed to prepare the people for him. Now, the original context of that passage in Isaiah is metaphorical. Kids, when you go trick-or-treating, which is better? A neighborhood with huge hills up and down, long driveways between every house, no streetlights, and vicious dogs barking in every yard? Or a neighborhood where the street is straight and flat? And the houses are right next to each other. And it's brightly lit. And people are standing right there on their porches ready to give candy. Which neighborhood, which road makes it easier for the purpose of the night? Isaiah is talking about God's people returning from exile. And the metaphor describes the roads being made straight and flat so that it's easy for people to return to God's presence. And since Isaiah himself connected that return from exile to a future time in redemptive history, John here takes that uh, analogy and applies it to his own ministry. His ministry is not about John accomplishing John's goals. This is a ministry designed to make people ready for Christ to accomplish his. His answer subverts their expectations. To their way of thinking, John's identity should come from his own authority, not from someone else's. If John himself is really a no one, as he says, he doesn't even say he's a significant person. He just says he's a voice. Then, verse 25, why are you baptizing? You aren't the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. This question is really an accusation. You have no right. John again offers a response contrary to their expectation. The question is, by whose authority? And look at what John says. Among you stands one you do not know, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Yes, John's doing these things. He's baptizing with water, he says, but not by his own authority. By the authority of another, one whose authority is so great, John is not even worthy to be at his feet. John is confident in his own identity because he is confident in another's authority, an authority that's worth is far beyond his own. So let's consider several things about John's response that are applicable in various ways to our lives. We don't have the calling of John the Baptist, but we do have the calling to point to Christ. And because our testimonies are the same, that Jesus is the Christ, we will find other useful similarities as well. First, it strikes me that John acknowledges the reasonableness of the questions he's being asked. John participates 
in the conversation. He answers their questions. While he will subvert their expectations, he still engages with what they're asking. He does not challenge their right to ask or their reasonableness. Some in the church today consider Christianity to be such a private religion that actions that are born out of our personal faith cannot be questioned by anyone. Who are you to judge? It's a reason why church membership is in decline. People think that even friends and family should never probe too deeply into your spirituality. So the context of any authority within the church to do so is completely dismissed. But while Christianity is a deeply personal religion, it is not a private one. God puts us all in community, for one, and under authority as well. John is not offended by the religious rulers questioning. He doesn't dismiss them with a who are you to judge or a don't you know who I am. In fact, he starts by saying essentially, I'm not as important as you think I am. This leads to a second observation. John is selectively confrontational. When it comes to his identity and authority, he does not confront. He doesn't confront them about their authority or the theological errors among their sects, hypocrisy, a lack of knowledge about the scriptures. There are a lot of things as I read this situation that would tempt me to be confrontational. And John doesn't take the bait on any of them. But it's not because he's unwilling to confront. It's because he's selective. He actually says two very confrontational things in this passage. The first is his quotation of Isaiah. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. This is confrontational because John isn't just saying this to the people he's baptizing or to the watching crowds. He's saying it to the religious rulers standing in front of him. He's pleading with his hearers, including this commission of religious elites. He's pleading that they repent. Another pastor writes that when a king is about to visit his people, the road must be prepared without any difficulties or obstructions. John wishes to say that the Jews, including the members of the investigating committee, should make straight the Lord's highway that leads to their hearts. Calling people to prepare their hearts for the work that Christ needs to do in their hearts, that's the good kind of confrontational, don't you think? The other challenge is in verse 26. He directs at the inquisitors the statement, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. The religious rulers are eager to figure out John's situation. They want to identify him as either the Christ or a false Christ. And as we've established, that's theoretically a good thing. They're protecting the people of God. But as we see over the next many chapters, that's not what they end up doing. They're not using that zeal for good. As it turns out, they're so eager to root out false Christs, anyone that would threaten their power, that they cannot see and receive the true Christ even when he stands among them. John is confrontational here. When it comes to calling people to repentance, when it comes to pointing people to Christ, he is willing to confront. But he is not 
And perhaps that's the reason why? Confrontational about anything else. He realizes that he cannot both vindicate his own identity and authority while also submitting and pointing to Christ's. He has to choose. And like John, we have to choose. Who are we more concerned be validated in the eyes of this world? Christ or ourselves? Our authority or his? That's the third observation, how consistently John points to Christ. As it's said elsewhere, John must decrease so that Christ may increase. And John applies this to everything. The way he talks about the baptisms he's administering, he essentially says, I baptize with water. I can only administer a sign. I can only put water on someone as a mark of what is to come. But the one who comes after me can actually bestow the thing signified. He bestows the promise of salvation itself. John applies this decrease-increase way of thinking to the testimony he's giving as well. How does he answer the question, finally, who are you? He says, I'm a voice. I'm a voice in the wilderness. With regards to the authority they're speaking, who John is doesn't matter. The one his voice represents has all authority. John deflects all potential praise, and all claims to personal authority. And he even does this in places where he could weasel a more precise but still honest answer if he wanted to. And that kind of answer would have made him sound more important. After all, God saw great significance in John's ministry. This is John the Baptist. In Luke 1, God's angel of the Lord says that John will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. In Matthew 12, Jesus flat out calls John Elijah in this same sense. These things are spiritually true of John. He could have claimed that glory for himself. And he wouldn't have been incorrect. But he knew what his inquisitors were looking for. He knew that this wasn't really a question of identity, but one of authority. And so he could not answer yes to any of their questions without pointing to himself rather than Christ. When they said, are you Elijah? It would have been accurate for him to say yes, but it would have been wrong. When they said, are you the prophet? It would have been accurate for him to say yes. But it would have been wrong because he knew I must decrease so that Christ may increase. John is the best example I've ever found in scripture of Proverbs 27.2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. And in John's case, he was satisfied that the mouth that would praise him was Christ's, was God himself. Makes me feel pretty bad when I so desperately seek the praise of others. Are we content with that identity? Even more, do we find daily joy in that identity? Is it enough that God will say of us, well done, good and faithful servant? Or do we go through life seeking more affirmation than that? Yeah, that's fine. But I want these people to think I'm important. 
Are we willing to be less in the eyes of the world if it means that we are more in the eyes of Christ? Isn't that really the key question of verse 22? What do you say about yourself? What do you say about yourself? And as the world asks you to define your identity, from what authority does that identity come? John doesn't challenge the identity or the authority of his inquisitors. We can probably imagine how they would have responded if he did. But he did challenge them. In fact, my fourth observation is that he challenges all of us. He calls on everyone to get to work making straight the way of the Lord. In our hearts and minds, we need to clear out the cruft that obstructs God's work in us. Are there sins we're holding on to? Selfish desires? Bad habits that are not sin but lead us into temptation? Longings and desires that take us away from him rather than toward him. Those are the bumps and the potholes and the curves in the road. And we are called to make straight the way. The religious rulers were likely highly offended at John's suggestion that they might need to be baptized also. Can't you hear them huff? What cleansing do we possibly need And if you can't hear that huff in them, listen to the world around you and to the depths of your own heart at times. What cleansing do I possibly need? What debt do I owe God? That's why John's baptism is tied so closely with repentance. It's a baptism that acknowledges the need to be made clean, that even with the turning away from sin, we are not able to purify ourselves sufficiently. And that's not an easy conclusion to reach. In fact, it can only be reached by the work of the Spirit. Yet even so, we're called to respond to that Spirit and make the way straight. A final observation is that John holds Nothing back. This point is a little more obscure in the text and requires some backstory. It's found in verse 27, where John says, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The relationship between student, disciple, teacher at this point in history was pretty intense. Kids, you might hear this and be thankful that you didn't live in the ancient Near East. Because when a student agreed that he was going to follow a particular teacher, that he was going to be the disciple of that teacher, he was basically agreeing to become her slave. The student did whatever the teacher told him to do. He went wherever the teacher told him to go. His identity was subsumed under his masters. He did whatever task the teacher assigned, the exact same things that a slave would do. Except for one thing. I know it's weird, but in the ancient Near East, the one thing that a slave had to be willing to do that a student or disciple did not, was to take off the teacher's shoes. 
That was the one thing that even a faithful student could hold back and say, that's slave's work. I'm better than that. It was the one thing. But John, disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, student at the teacher's feet, he denies himself even that exception. He is the student. And though the teacher, Christ, is yet unknown to these religious rulers, John wants it to be clear that this is no ordinary teacher. Against another, John might still claim some level of honor for himself. Yes, my master is a great teacher, but I do not untie his sandals. Though small, he could refuse that one task to maintain his own level of authority and honor. But John wants these men to know that with Jesus, it is not that John is too good to untie the laces of his sandals. It's just the opposite. With this Teacher, even for that lowly task, John is unworthy. When it comes to following Christ, John holds absolutely nothing back. The one exception he's allowed, he declines. His honor, his identity in the eyes of the world, these aren't just secondary concerns for John. They're not even on his radar. He finds his identity Fully in the authority of Jesus Christ. He knows that that is where joy is ultimately to be found. And so he gladly acknowledges that at one level, he is unworthy even to untie sandals, the lowest chore of the lows. He does not claim to be the master or the teacher. He wants the world to know that he is a student And compared to the authority and glory of this teacher, he's even lower than a slave. But that is the counterpredictable nature of serving this master, of following this teacher, of finding your identity in the authority of Christ. If you want to claim your own authority, you want to build your identity in this life on that, you will find no glory and no joy at the end of that path. But by surrendering our own authority, as John did, by holding nothing back and building an identity that rests entirely and only on Christ's, joy and glory are both ours. When I read this account, it occurs to me how liberating John's life must have been. I mean, you read the other accounts and you figure out he's a pretty free spirit, what with the clothes thing and the. (laughs) He lived a liberated life. But what he was free from that I seem to struggle with so mightily is the social pressure and the authority one-up-ism of this world. The don't you know who I am? I matter because of me. I'm important in myself. And John lives this liberated life because he's 
free from all that. And he's free from it because he knows where to find his identity. So where will you find yours?